Acts 17 this morning, everybody, if you want to take your seats. Acts 17. Alan and I look at each other for cues because uh, we're the only two paying attention to each other. <laughs> you know, for really being 8, what is it, really? Is it really 9.30? It's really 9.30. Well, it's 10.30, but it's 9.30. You guys are like really talkative for some reason here. Appreciate you guys coming today. I know you guys are already grouchy because of the time change. And you guys have to come in and tell me how much you hate the chairs being split. Which makes me leave it up one week longer. I'm just telling you that's how it works. So let's pray and we'll go and get started. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. You teach, we listen, let your spirit lead. Now, Lord, not only just to hear it, not to mark it, underline it, but to live it, to really live it and all we say and do in your name. Amen. Hey, I just want to encourage you this afternoon as well, too, with the outreach that Karen was saying. You know, it says in the book of Corinthians, there's many different ministries, many different activities, etc. Not everybody is called to do the same things, and we get that. But everybody is called to pray for those that are. So this afternoon, you may not feel led to go out and be involved with that. Time commitments, work commitments, life commitments may keep you from doing that. But I would just encourage you to really stop, take some time this afternoon, and keep that in prayer. And we'd really appreciate that in all ways and all things. So, Acts 17, I'm really looking forward to this morning's message because it's one of those messages that it's bookend very nicely. It starts in 16, it ends in 34, and it's one concise thought. And what's going on here is Paul's continuing his missionary journey, and he now arrives at Athens. So he arrives at Athens, and Athens is a completely different town than the other towns that he's been in. Athens was the intellectual center of the time, if you will. Many different gods, many different idols, many different temples but very intellectually smart. And so he's dealing with a completely different crowd than what he's dealt with before, and we'll see what happens here. So Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So he arrives at Athens, and it's a completely different type of thing. And the first thing he sees is all the idolatry going on in verse 16. And what happens is spirit is provoked. Depending on your translations, he's stirred. He's distressed. He's troubled. Literally means he's irritated and angry. That's what it really means. He walks around the city and he sees all these false temples and false idolatries. He sees all these people that are the smartest people of the age. And it makes him upset and angry. Now, Christians, you're going to run into this. You're going to turn on the news and your spirit is going to be provoked. You're going to get upset. I've been doing this for 20 years out here. Every four years at a presidential election, Christians start acting like non-Christians. We find somebody we really like, we get behind that person, and we get really stirred up, distressed, troubled, and provoked and angry. And we've got to be careful what we do with this anger. Please remember biblically, it's not wrong to get angry. It's do while you're angry that determines whether it's a sin or not. Jesus is the best example of this. Can you go with me to Mark chapter 3, please? Mark 3. Things are going to frustrate you. Reports of what's happening in the world, 
news, politics, church event, everything. You're going to get provoked, stirred up. And some of it is going to be biblical anger. You're going to see it, realize it's not God-glorifying, it is not furthering the kingdom, and you are going to be stirred up. What do you do with that? Well, Jesus set the best example in Mark chapter 3. You have to have a little bit of background on this. Jesus is going to heal somebody. Now, it's not against the law to heal somebody. But what happened at the time, the Pharisees at the time said it was. You can't heal somebody on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It was supposed to be a day of no work. And they looked at healing as a work. And so they came up with all these rules on the degree of your injury on what you were allowed to do to try to treat that injury. None of this is in the Bible, but these are the rules they came up with. So Jesus healing somebody is going against the religious order of the day. And that really provoked them. Well, what did Jesus do with this? Verse 1. He entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. Verse 2 of chapter 3. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he looked around at them with anger. He's angry. Why is he angry? Being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. See, that's what you're supposed to be upset about. You're upset at their heart being hard and not right with the Lord. You've got to be careful that you don't get behind certain things and let your anger get the best of you. If you're going to get upset at something, get upset that these people aren't walking with Jesus Christ and you want them to come to know Christ. That's what you want to be upset about. So he's grieved at the hardness of the heart. I've seen that out here with me. I get frustrated at situations. I get frustrated at people. And what am I frustrated with? They're not walking right with the Lord. They're not doing what the Bible says. They're going down a path. They're losing their families. They're losing their witness. They're losing everything. And it grieves me and it makes me angry. But what am I really upset at? The hardness of their heart, that they're not willing to listen and be right with Christ. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisee went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Christ is a great example of realizing you're going to get frustrated by the way the world is going and what people are doing, but you can't let that anger control you and make it sinful anger. Jumping back now to Acts 17, please. Paul's walking through the town. He sees the idolatry. It it makes him angry. Makes him angry. This is where the town wants to go. This is what the people want to do. You're going to flip on the television. It's going to make you angry. There used to be this um, Christian talk station that I used to listen to, and I would realize this is for me, me only, Once I got done listening with them, I was not edified. (laughs) I was more upset. I was more frustrated. I was more angry, and not in a good way. And I realized I just need to limit myself with that type of stuff. I've told you many times before, I don't really follow the news. I'll follow Jerusalem. I think it's important to know what's going on. But a lot of the other stuff, it just provokes me to the point of flesh. I need to pray for people and be a light and be a witness. And I see sometimes Christians so focused on world events and news, and there's no peace and joy and edification. They're always worked up with knowing what the other side is doing. And what I see going on here with Paul, he is so upset, he's so angry. What does he do? Okay, now let's talk about a couple options that he could do. There are some verses in the book of Psalms. You don't need to turn there. And sometimes these verses are taken out of context. And sometimes these verses are really enjoyed by people to quote and to read. And I just want to read you a couple of them because this is kind of what we want to do. First verse, Psalm 3, verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone and you have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Some of you are like, yeah, that sounds good. 
It's biblical to pray for the teeth of the ungodly to be broken and knocked out. There's another one in Psalm 137 that says this. Happy are the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Now, if you quote those verses out of context, you're really getting quite the picture here. And so people like that idea of anger. I've noticed that most people care more about sin being punished than souls being saved. That's what they want. They want sin punished, not souls saved. Jesus said the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. But we want the sin punished. Trust me, sin will be punished. If you've been coming to our Wednesday night services, we just talked about the great white throne judgment. Sin will be punished. So we're angry. We're upset. What does Paul do? Verse 17. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. He reasoned with them. That's our word from last week. He dialogued with them. He talked with them. He got there and he witnessed to them. Where did he witness? Verse 17, in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Everywhere he went, he was witnessing for the Lord. And so instead of getting anger to this point of sin, anger to the point of attacking, he stopped in verse 17 and said, if I really want to change these people, I need to start talking to them. I need to start representing Jesus Christ to them. Where? Everywhere. Synagogues, marketplaces, everywhere. And really what it comes out to, does our heart break for the lost? You know, Jesus, before he went to the cross, he looked over Jerusalem in Matthew 23 and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he wept over them because he loved them so much. And he knew the path they were going was a path of destruction. And he wept for them. As Christians, we're supposed to have the same heart. You're going to get upset at idolatry. You're going to get upset at how the world is going. But you can't let that anger become sinful and wrong. You need to go out and represent Jesus Christ, represent the Lord in all we do and say. And we need to understand that we're there because this idolatry is going to get the best of the world. And we want to represent the Lord. So what happens as he's talking to him? Verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which means Mars Hill, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of what you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and their foreigners who were there, they spent their time in nothing else but to either to tell or to hear some new thing. So they said, We want to get together and talk to you. Now, verse 18, when it says they encountered him, It makes it sound like they just ran into each other in the marketplace. Hey, Paul, why don't you come talk to us about this? That word literally means they want to debate. And it means they want to toss ideas back and forth. It doesn't mean they really want to know truth. I'm going to make sure you guys understand this. They're not looking for answers. They're looking to do verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They just wanted to keep talking about new ideas. They call him a babbler, if you saw that in verse 18. That word literally means somebody who goes through the marketplace and picks up the scraps of food that fall off the food carts. And you correct your food, your meal, by just picking up pieces. So they're saying to Paul, basically, you're kind of picking up pieces of all these different religions. So why don't you come fill us in on what you think? Once again, not really looking for truth. They just like to hear themselves talk. Who is he talking to? Epicureans and the Stoics. Epicureans were the group that said it's all about pleasure. Do what feels good. Yes, there are gods, but they're not involved in my life. I don't know what's going to happen when I die, so I'm just going to enjoy life to the fullest. Stoics, the complete opposite way. So we get a word stoic. Unemotional, 
Very dignified. Yes, there's gods, but they give us no direction in life. So why go to these emotional extremes? It doesn't matter. So you have these two completely different groups of people that say, let's get together and talk about this. But once again, know their heart. It's not about seeking truth. It's about just hearing their own words. I have noticed in in my time of sharing with people, I'll start conversations, and it will go on for a long time. There will be lots of phone calls. There will be contacts back and forth. Hey, why don't you come over? I'll go over. And I realize after a while, there's no fruit coming out of this. They just like to do exactly what's going on here at Morris Hill. They just like to talk. And they just like to talk about God and life and death and deep things. And, you know, you try to bring Jesus into it. You try to, and it just goes nowhere. This is exactly what is happening. It seems fruitful at first, but after a while, there's no fruit and it's just talk. But Paul's going to go give this a chance. We'll see what happens with this. Please remember, and I want to stress this again, they're not looking for a relationship with the Lord in truth. They just like to hear themselves speak. So how does Paul address this? Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, once again Mars Hill, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, As also some of your own poets have said, we are all his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that this divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and men's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed among them was Dionysus, the Aeropagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Now, that's a short little message. It takes about two minutes to read. Now, what happens with this? Let's break this one down. This is a unique crowd that Paul has never dealt with before. Look how he starts, verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Please note that as an observation, not a compliment. I know very religious people. You know very religious people. I know people that are much more religious than I am. I cannot compete with them in any way whatsoever. Once again, being religious is not necessarily a compliment. It's an observation. You know, a few years ago, we went up to Dearborn and did some uh, door-to-door evangelism amongst the Muslims, and we went up in the month of Ramadan. That's very religious. Fasting from um, sunup to sundown. Very religious. More religious than us. Just recently, we were talking to somebody who is of the uh, Hindu persuasion. They were fasting all day. All day. Very religious. But it's not a relationship. So him observing how religious they are is really not complimenting. we got to be very careful that we don't fall into that trap of just being very religious. Sometimes, depending on how the uh, background you were raised... You may have been raised with a very religious background. And religious is this idea of my works, my effort, determines something with God. 
Please remember with Christianity, the beauty of grace and mercy, God cannot love you more than what he loves you right now. And that's beautiful. There's nothing I can do to make the Lord love me more. Now, I can do more because I want to go deeper, I want to grow, and I want to have a closer relationship with the Lord. When we fast as Christians, we're not fasting for God's favor. We're not fasting to earn salvation. We're fasting because there's time I want to spend with you, Lord, to have more wisdom, guidance, and direction. Muslims are fasting to prove their righteousness. Hindus are fasting to prove their righteousness. And I hope I've done enough good works to get me in. That's religious. So Paul says, you're very religious. I observe that. So now since you're so religious, verse 23, you even have an altar to a God you don't know. Because just in case you missed him, just in case you missed him, we've set up an altar to the unknown God because we don't want to miss anybody. Now, how would you start witnessing to people like this? These people are intelligent. These people want to talk about it. They're very religious. They have a background, the temples, the idols. They have all this stuff. What's the first point you're going to make in your lesson? Paul's first point, verse 24, God created everything. I have noticed the two best questions to start a spiritual conversation. Where did you come from and where are you going when you die? Where did you come from? Now, most people will give you some stock science answer. They're just going to regurgitate what they've heard. But where do you really think you came from? I mean, where did you really think? And I've had some people that are kind of smart, Alex. Well, I came from my mom and dad. Where did they come from? From their mom and dad. All right, I'm moving on. But the point is, where did you come from? So Paul says in verse 24, God's created everything. Please remember this is God's greatest witnessing tool. You've heard me say this many times before. The Bible has never asked you to defend God's existence. And the Bible has never asked you to prove that God exists. If you have to prove God exists, then how small is your God? Your God is big enough on his own to prove that he exists. So therefore, he says, I have given creation as my greatest witnessing tool. So therefore, that is how I will show the world I exist. Romans 1 says that my invisible attributes are clearly seen by creation. You look around and you see creation, something exists that made this. You look up at night sky, the Bible says the heavens declare the majesty of God. They know something exists. What are they going to do with that information? I don't know, but they know something's out there. The problem is 2 Peter 3 says this, at the end times, people will willfully forget creation. And that's sure happening right now. People forget creation. They come up with their own ideas, their own mindsets, etc. But Paul starts out with creation. You came from something. What are you going to do with that? And you came from something, and then verse 25, he gave you life. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. You are breathing right now because there is a God that created you, he's saying. Blood is flowing through your body because God has created you. He's given you life and breath. And verse 25, he needs nothing. Please note that once again, 25. He doesn't need anything from you. Now, to my own shame, I will tell you that I only in the last couple of years have really fully started to understand verse 25. I, I'm not needed. Because we like to think how important we are. It's like, oh, okay, I know the Lord could use somebody else. That's right. But you know what? It, it really works better if I'm here. If I'm doing it, if I'm leading the ministry, if I'm doing this. No, he doesn't need any of us. I can remember as a new believer missing opportunities to get a chance to witness to someone and walking away feeling utterly condemned and defeated. That person is going to hell because I did not share Christ with them. And then later realizing, wait a second, 
I miss the blessing of sharing Christ with them. The Lord loves them so much through the Spirit, he's just going to bring another person into their lives. I'm really not needed. So when you look at this, you realize I'm not needed. That's very, very freeing. Wow. God is able to make the world turn without me. The Lord is good. But then it goes to the extreme of, well, if I'm not needed, then I don't need to do anything. It doesn't matter if I read, pray. It doesn't matter if I go to church. By golly, I got up an hour early today. It doesn't even matter. You're right. Why do you do it then? You don't do it because he needs you. You do it because you want to. You desire to go deeper. You desire to want to know more. It's not a have to. It's not a homework. It's a want to. I choose to. Once again, going back to the subject of fasting again, talking to uh, some of our Hindu friends, the subject of fasting came up. They fast out of religious obligation, have to. And we were explaining to them, we fast because we just want to. You're going without food because you hope it earns some type of favor with a God and salvation. We're going without food because we just love them so much we want to spend more time with them talking. That's the difference. It's not needed. It's not have to. It's wanted. And when you realize how unneeded you are, you can just enjoy walking in God's grace and mercy because it doesn't fall on your shoulders. It's all the Lord. I just need to be available. So verse 24, he's created everything. Verse 25, he gives you life. He doesn't need you. Please remember back to this religious idolatry they were in. The relationship they had with gods was a give and take. Some of these religions actually believed that you needed to feed the gods by your sacrifice. Once again, how small is your God that if he doesn't get a sacrifice, he's going hungry? That's a bit of a concern, I would say. So, he does not need you. What are you going to do with this? Verse 26, please understand he made from one blood. This was a very prideful intellectual group. They thought as Athenians, they were the best of the best. Paul says we're all equal. So what are we going to do? Verse 27, we're going to find him. He's created the world. He's given us life. He doesn't need us. So what do we do, verse 27? That they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. That's really a very apt description of our life. God is right there, but we're groping trying to find him. That is so true. He's right there. Go, Go with me, if you will, please, to Isaiah 55. I want to talk about how close the Lord is, but yet at the same time, it feels like he's so far away. Isaiah 55. We know what we should do. We know what's there. We know the answers. But it's this idea of groping, finding it in the dark, looking for it. But he's right there near. Have you ever had that when you go into a dark room and you know where things are at, but you're just trying to find it? That happened to me actually this morning. Um, sometime in the middle of the night, one of the boys came in and said, can I sleep in your room? And I don't even pay attention. I just say, grab a blanket, grab a pillow, and just go down there. It could have been a stranger. I don't know. I'm assuming it was one of my kids. Um, so it comes in, and, so, and then I had a phone call early this morning. And so here I am getting ready to get up to go to church. So there's the time change. So the light is different in the room. I know there's a kid somewhere laying somewhere on my floor. And I'm on the phone trying to get the stuff around I need to get ready to go to church. And time change already makes Dawn in a bad mood. She hates this day. This is her least favorite day. And you think I'm joking, and I'm not. And so don't talk to Dawn today. And... Don't turn a light on, because if I turn a light on, that's going to make it even worse. So here I am in the dark, groping, trying to find. I don't want to step on a kid, trying to minister. 
Everything's right there. It's near. I just can't put it all together. See, I think that's the way life is. People know there's something out there. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts. There's something where we know there's more. When I go talk to people, they know there's more. But are they really looking? See, take a look at Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God. And he will abundantly pardon. See, I love verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. God is there. In the middle of situations, we emotionally tell ourselves he's not. When we're battling physical sickness, we can't ever imagine feeling better. So we pray and ask for God's touch and healing. It doesn't happen right away. And then we're upset and we're bothered because we treat God like Mr. Fix-It. Just do it and do it quickly. We're struggling with finances. We're struggling with emotional issues, spiritual issues. We call out to the Lord. It doesn't happen the way we think it should. And then we're upset and we say, God doesn't care. He's not near. Now, how many times have we said out here, his definition of good is different than our definition of good? We just talked a couple weeks ago how he allows trials and tribulations to grow us. He's there. He is near. And I think one of the lies from the pit of hell is constantly telling us that God is not near us. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And so I see Paul here saying he is closer to you than what you think. These people were using idols to try to find their God. And Paul's saying, guys, he's right here. Now, Thankfully, we've moved past most idols, but there's still actual idols. Run into that sometimes, so there's actual false religious idols. But most of the time when we run into idols, it's not like the little statue up on the shelf. It's just things that we allow to get in the way of God. See, I think one of the best descriptions or definitions, I should say, of an idol is anything that blocks you and your relationship with the Lord. So what could an idol be? There's lots of things it can be. It could be work. I know people that work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. That's going to get in your way. Some people, it's the idol of money. They'll never be enough. They always want more. For some people, it's the idol of activities. There's always something going on. Those activities keep them from going deeper. I don't know what the idol is, but it's something that gets in the way between you and the Lord. Here we are groping for him, trying to find him. He's not far, but we allow all these things to get in the way. So Paul's trying to tell these people, he's created the world, he doesn't need us, he gives us life, find him, and once you find him, look at verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. See, it goes from now having life, literal physical life, to verse 28, you can have an actual relationship with him. He gives you life spiritually. That's amazing. Not just life physically. We already did that in verse 25. Now this is life spiritually. Verse 28. And he reminds him in verse 29. It is not a gold, silver, stone shaped idol. It's God himself. And now, Athenians, you have been presented this truth. Verse 30. These times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. You have been introduced to the real God. You've been induced to who he is. Now you are responsible for this. And then he finishes it up in verse 31. Judgment is coming. And what has happened is Jesus has risen from the dead. And through his righteousness you can be saved. Short little message. What, maybe two minutes? Now maybe he would have gone on farther. I don't know. Verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear again you more in this matter. Seems like they kind of shut him off. See, they, they don't want truth. They want to talk. Let's compare your Jesus to our God. 
Let's compare your eternity to our eternity. And let's just bounce back and forth. And this is what we like to do still as a society today. And we like to make little comments like all paths lead to God. All religions are the same. He just has different names. We can't do that. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by him. That's what separates Christianity. And so when he gets to the point of verse 31 of judgment, resurrection, and righteousness, yeah, these people, this is getting too deep for them. And it's not that it's too deep for them intellectually. It's starting to hit home. Like I said, you have many people that want to talk. You may have somebody at work that always wants to bring up God, always wants to talk about God, but they really don't want truth. They just like to hear their own voice, and they like to talk about it. And you will be mocked. Some say we'll talk more later. What's Paul's great response to this, verse 33? He leaves. I think that's one of the most overlooked things in Christianity. Plant a seed and then get out of the way. I think of the example of the rich young ruler. And if you remember the story from the Gospels, this man had youth, he had power, he had money. He comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? So Jesus explains it to him. And then the Bible says the rich young ruler went away sad because he had many possessions and he didn't want to get rid of them. And the Bible says, Jesus let him go. Sometimes there's fruit in just saying, I have presented it. Now it's between you and the Holy Spirit. So Paul presents it and then departs. There was some fruit, verse 34. Diocinus, a woman named Demarius, a couple others it sounds like. We do know from biblical history, at least in the Bible, no church at Athens was started. You know, a lot of the other times, like Paul's going to go to Corinth here in verse 1 of chapter 18. That becomes the church of Corinth. We have 1 Corinthians, we have 2 Corinthians. You know, we were just talking about Philippi just a couple weeks ago. We have the book of Philippians. There is no book of Athenians. As far as we know, a church did not start. Why? They're too smart for their own good. They have too many idols. Too much debate, too much discussion, too much talking, too much thinking, too many words, too many activities. Just too busy to really know who the Lord is. How does Paul handle this? Verse 1, we're not going to get into chapter 18. But after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. It would be fun to know what was going through Paul's mind. And I think we get a glimpse of that. Go with me to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians, chapter 2. I don't want to infer too much into the scriptures. You have to say there was some fruit. Some people got saved. Did a church start? Not that we know of. Was it as fruitful as some of the other places he went? Galatia, Philippi, Ephesus. It doesn't look like it. So what was going through Paul's mind after this? I mean, this was a big deal. I envisioned this pretty big crowd at Mars Hills. They're giving him the podium. This is not Paul demanding attention. This is not Paul, because there's going to be a couple other places here coming up where there's a riot getting ready to start. This is a group of people that actually invited Paul in and said, would you please tell us what you believe? I would think Paul would have to be excited about this opportunity. He gets up there. The message goes for a couple minutes, kind of stopped, kind of interrupted, and it just abruptly ends just like that. And that's what these people are like. They're just going to jump from idea to idea to idea. So what was going through Paul's mind? Well, let's take a look at it. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, remember he went to Corinth right after Athens, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. 
And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to connect too many dots. Let's go with the facts that we know. He ends Acts 17 at Mars Hill. He departs Acts 18 verse 1. He goes to Corinth. And right now he's telling us in 1 Corinthians 2, what was I like when I came to Corinth? And I came to you in Corinth, verse 3, in weakness, fear, and trembling. Sounds like the Mars Hill thing shook him up a little bit, doesn't it? Maybe it wasn't as fruitful as what he thought. Maybe it was a different crowd he wasn't used to. And I see verse 4, my speech, my preaching were not worth persuasive words. Maybe he ran into a group one time that his eloquence didn't work the way he thought it would. And he realized, okay, these are people that sometimes is just not going to accept the Lord. I can remember times of pride where it's like I hear about somebody struggling or a marriage falling apart. And there's these thoughts of, oh, just give me 10 minutes with them. And I look at Paul and it's like, oh, I've been there. Weakness, fear, and much trembling. There's been Sundays I get done with the message, and it's like, I should probably just go right back to my office and light my letter of resignation because it's just done. It's over. And then it's like, oh, wait, I got to do this on Wednesday again. And then I got to do this on Sunday again. And then I got small groups throughout the week, and I got to do this again. And I'm in weakness, fear, and trembling. In verse 4, I'm analyzing my speech and my preaching and realizing my words are not persuasive. Because why, verse 4, I'm using human wisdom. So I need to go back and remind myself of Paul, verse 2. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul came to Corinth and said, guys, I got one message for you. And that's Christ and him crucified. And if you study out the book of 1 Corinthians, that is the focus. is Christ and him crucified. Look at verse 18, chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul came to Corinth after Mars Hill and said, guys, I only got one string on my guitar, and it's the string of Christ being crucified. And that's what I want to tell you about. So I don't want to sit here and say that Mars Hill was a failure because it wasn't. People were saved. People was fruit there. It was something Paul had not probably experienced before. And I want to encourage you, especially if you're going out this afternoon, to do the windows and the fuel, you may have some people that just stop and just think you're the greatest people in the world. And there's going to be other people that are going to be annoyed by your goodness. I've witnessed to people and they've gotten saved. I've witnessed to people and they've gotten angry. I've witnessed to people that just flat out don't care. Paul is experiencing all these different things. And there's going to be times that you walk away from a ministry or a, a time of the Lord and you're going to walk away in weakness, fear, and trembling and you're going to say, I'm a failure. Then I want you to remember what it says in Romans 8 that you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. As long as you're doing it in Christ. In Christ. See, Paul said, I'm not going to do it with my human wisdom, verse 4, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. One time, Richard and I were talking about a young man who had a whole lot of potential. He, he, I mean, he was the rich young ruler. He really was. He was tall. He was just a good-looking guy, very charismatic, well-educated, good job, charming, anything you could want. And that was the problem. He was tall, good-looking. That's why you tall people. You're going to struggle with salvation. <laughs> but he had everything, and that was the problem. He had everything. 
And so therefore his human wisdom, his persuasive words, his strength was all so good. And that's where I look at Paul and Paul's like, yeah, you know what? I started growing in the Lord with fear, weakness, and trembling. Because I realized it's not me. There's a real blessing in realizing God doesn't need me. And there's a real blessing in realizing I can't do it. It has to be through the Lord. And that's why I think in some ways Mars Hill was quite the success because we get a chance to see Paul's personality of what it did do to him. And he says, hey, I just want to stick to the cross. And that's what I want to do. I want to keep preaching Christ crucified. There was fruit. Good came out of that. Amen. But compared to the other ones, it wasn't as much as the others. Paul said, I'm just going to stick to the cross. Worship team, if we come forward here. What does this mean for us today? You're going to get provoked. You're going to get irritated. You're going to get angry. Please remember the example of Jesus, that he was angry at the hardness of their heart, not the individuals. Please remember the example of Paul. He was so angry that he said, I need to talk to these people. I need to dialogue with them. I need to represent Jesus to them. Please remember when it comes to sharing your faith, two great questions. Where did you come from and where are you going? Paul started his message out with, you were created and God gives you life.